I think it's important to recognize, while this is certainly a threat to abortion rights, this is a political, systematic approach to depriving millions of people of rights on all sorts of levels. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Planned Parenthood, Propaganda from Bitch Media, Counterspin, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Democracy Now!, Activism for the Women's Health Protection Act, and Dan Savage. My husband and I just celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary and people still tell us that we act like newlyweds. And so for me, having a child with him just felt like it would be an extension of how we felt about each other. I really thought that it would happen quickly and easily, but after a year and a half, um, it was clear that we were gonna need help. And so I visited a fertility doctor. By the eighth try, I was really convinced that I was going to get another negative on the pregnancy test. And I got a phone call from the nurse at the fertility clinic. And she said, I have some news for you. And I expected that she was going to say no again. And she said, you're pregnant. I found out at about 12 weeks that I was expecting a boy and that he had tested negative for the most common birth defects. We did the 18-week anatomy scan at a specialist's office. The doctor told us that our baby had a skeletal dysplasia, which meant that his chest was very narrow um, and his rib cage was very narrow um, and so narrow that his lungs wouldn't be able to develop. Um, and because his lungs wouldn't be able to develop properly, um, he would never be able to breathe on his own. If I carried the pregnancy to term, Without any medical intervention, he would suffocate probably within a few minutes. With the extreme medical intervention, including a ventilator and a feeding tube, he might live several days. We had the second anatomy scan two weeks later when I was 20 weeks pregnant, and unfortunately, they confirmed the diagnosis of lethal skeletal dysplasia. Even though I've identified as pro-choice from a very young age, I never thought that I would have an abortion. I had certain negative stereotypes around people who did. And so I think it's important for us to share our stories um, because we understand all of the nuances that go into that decision-making. If I had been forced to carry my pregnancy to term, my life would be very different right now. I can't imagine having given birth and watching my son suffer. I can't imagine holding him and watching him take his last breath and knowing that that would be painful for him. I also can't imagine a world without my daughter. She is absolutely beautiful and is sunshine and is probably the best thing that has ever happened in my life um, after meeting my husband. I want my daughter to live in a world in which she can make her own reproductive choices, um, whether that's about access to birth control, um, morning after pills, 
um, abortion, or even just the ability to see a gynecologist on a regular basis and keep tabs on her own sexual health. Having charge of your own reproductive health means that you can control your destiny. And that's so important for me. I want her to grow up knowing that the sky is the limit. When filmmaker Don Porter arrived in Jackson, Mississippi in the spring of 2013, she didn't plan to make a movie about abortion. Porter, who was trained as a lawyer but became an award-winning documentary filmmaker, was hard at work on a different project about surveillance of activists during the civil rights movement. And she thought that the issue of abortion rights was settled, squared away with the 1973 decision Roe v. Wade. But then skimming the local paper one day, Porter came across a startling statistic. In all of Mississippi, a state with more than half a million women of reproductive age, there was only one abortion clinic. She was so stunned that she called up the clinic and asked if she could come learn more. The result is the film Trapped, which opened nationally on March 4th. Here's a clip from the trailer. The legislature passed a bill that they knew that we could not comply with. And that was the function of the bill. The function is a trap. In the past three years, there have been hundreds of restrictions passed, more than in the past decade. These rules don't add anything to the safety of women. This is our pharmacy. The drugs always expire because we never use them. I don't know that we've ever used any of these things in this clinic ever. They chop away piecemeal at reproductive rights. There's a two to three week waiting list for a procedure where time is of the essence. I remember getting a call once from a patient. She said, What if I tell you what I have in my kitchen cabinet and you tell me what I can do? Trapped explores the lives of doctors, nurses, and clinic volunteers who dedicate their days to making abortion safe and accessible. In recent years, their work has gotten harder. Across the country, clinics have seen wave after wave of so-called TRAP laws. That stands for Targeted Regulations of Abortion Providers. TRAP. Since 2010, state legislatures have passed over 288 such laws. As Trapped shows, keeping our reproductive rights intact has been a labor of love, with both volunteers and medical professionals pouring in their time and resources to help women access safe abortions. In this interview with Andrea Chase of the radio show Behind the Scenes, filmmaker Don Porter talks about the making of Trapped. So I was in Mississippi, I was in Jackson, and I was making a film about how state government passed laws and funded spies to infiltrate the NAACP. So I was kind of in that headspace. (laughs) But then uh, I like to read the local papers when I'm doing a project. And so I read that there was one clinic in the entire state of Mississippi. And I was just so 
taken aback by that. And I felt like I am a pro-choice person. I'm politically active. I'm politically aware. I read the newspapers. How did I not know this? So I did what any sane person would do. I called them up and said, can I come over? And I met Dr. Parker that day. And, you know, so here, sometimes, you know, the documentary gods are with you. And so here was this lovely African-American man. And he told me that he was flying from Chicago to work in clinics in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama. He was also working in Pennsylvania at the time because of the huge shortage of doctors who would provide abortions. Something about that just really visually grabbed me, the idea that someone was flying in, you know, kind of finger in the dike. And so that's that's where it began. And I asked if I could start following him. And um, we had some more conversations about it. But he said yes. And what was your biggest preconceived notion that was exploded while you were following these these fine human beings, these really dedicated individuals who are also people of faith? We should yeah. emphasize that. You know, there were so many. And I'm almost mortified at all of the... You don't realize how much popular culture penetrates your imagination until you're faced with reality. And so here I am, a pro-choice person. And the first shoot we did, my cameraman, Derek Wiesenhan, said, if Dr. Parker and the patient let me film a procedure, I want to do that. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not ready for that. And then I thought, you know, what was I so concerned about? What was I so afraid of? And so he went and they filmed and it was a really tiny room. So it was just Derek and Dr. Parker in because Derek said, well, I'm going. (laughs) You can stay here with your worries. And they came out five minutes later and Derek looked at me and we both have two kids. And he goes, that ain't no baby. (laughs) And I thought, you know, we have gotten so far from talking about the medicine of abortion that I was almost one of those people expecting a tiny little rubber baby to pop out. And, you know, the the medical reality is so far from, you know, it's like a period. So it it was really important to kind of go back to first principles, which is the medicine, and to start thinking about what does a doctor believe is medically necessary and safe. And, And so I had to really recalibrate to start thinking that way. And that was not because I was, I think I was, you know, I'm, I was politically pro-choice, and I needed to be medically pro-choice. Talk about the larger implications. Once government starts getting involved in the medicine of abortion and reproductive rights, what's to stop them from getting involved in other areas of health care? Well, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, a number of these laws are companion bills to some states' Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, they also oppose IUD. They oppose IVF. These are the same states that have passed personhood bills. Fetus is a person. Potential life is is sacrosanct. But I think for me, this film, it's about so much more than abortion. It's about the political mechanism by which people's reproductive lives and personal lives are controlled by people who have different opinions. Which brings up the separation of church and state, which is something more observed in the breach these days. (laughs) You know, it it is. And um, I'm a northerner. You know, I'm from, I was born in Brooklyn. I was raised in New York City. um, And we like our religion private. (laughs) And it's anything but private in the South. Um, And so that, I think that, to go back to your earlier question, that was another Um, kind of feeling I had to wrestle with because, you know, just 
like it's unseemly to ask people. It's like in the North, it's unseemly to ask what your religious background is. People might volunteer it, but it's not something we ask. Whereas in the South, and when I was filming Gideon's Army, I sat in on a jury selection where the prosecutor not only asked people what their church was, but how often they went as a voir dire question. And everybody happily volunteered, well, my home church is this, but this is the church I go to. And, you know, it really struck me that I needed to kind of check my bias and make sure that I had an open and respectful approach to religion. And that ended up becoming a really important piece of the film because it was important to my characters and their religious faith. You know, Dr. Parker will say, I don't do abortions in spite of my religion. I do it because of my religion. His God is a loving God. And I think, you know, that's in my Protestant upbringing that very much is in accord with how I was raised, which is it's a God of forgiveness. It's a God of loving, a God of comfort. Yes, yes. Not a God of screaming at you as you're walking in. I love that in front of one of the uh, the clinics that you filmed, there is a sign that says Jesus doesn't shame women. Mm-hmm. And yet these protesters do. You know, they do. And um, and they, they do so much more. The, the vitriol um, that Dr. Parker is subjected to One of the protesters called him a filthy Negro abortionist who's committing black genocide. So the racial um, and, you know, this uh, I I wanted to I see so clearly that these are not spontaneous talking points. You know, we see across the country. We had the protester who yelled like Black Lives Matter. (laughs) I, I didn't see her in Detroit. So, you know, I think this is a talking point for the anti-choice evangelicals because they know that so many black and Latino women are having abortion for all kinds of reasons, that this has become a very effective social stigma talking point. And in fact, Dr. Parker leads seminars with white doctors about how they are not committing black genocide. But the need for that kind of seminar, I think, is instructive. The laws themselves that are being passed in in these different states, they all come from the same source. It's not a spontaneous generation. No. no. So along the way, Sari Gilman um, is the wonderful editor of this film. And she kept saying, is there some kind of coordination happening? Because, you know, we were looking, we were actually looking at the different laws in different states. And we were doing that to make a graphics because I, I was like, we have to be accurate. We have to have the right number of states. So we had done a lot of research. And I was, you know, I'm just not a conspiracy person, despite the fact that I'd made a movie about conspiracy. <laughs> South. That's but, why you're um, the perfect person to make the film about conspiracy. Because I, I don't, I, you know, I think that I think that very few people are actually can get their act together enough to make the kind of conspiracy come to life. So then we found this group, Americans United for Life, that came to being in the wake of Roe v. Wade in in the seventies, and their sole objective is to overturn Roe. So unsuccessful in doing that, what they have been successful in is drafting model laws, and and they are laws that are passed around. So they started with personhood bills; those are you know effective at the state level, but struck down. Sort places. Then you have abortions illegal at six weeks. That was struck down. 15 weeks, struck down. 20 weeks. That one was a keeper. And so you have a number of states where, including Texas, um, including many other states where abortions outlawed after 20 weeks, which means that the conversation has automatically shifted not to abortions illegal always, but to there is a cutoff. You know, so that's the first huge restriction. And then you see, along with the legal campaign, is the social 
campaign. So these laws are being passed in a climate where we have this huge, at the state level, shift to the right. We have people who have protested and are aghast at the Obama presidency. You know, he's elected in 2008. In 2010, you have the Sarah Palin Tea Party uh, people elected at the state level. And one of the first things they do is start passing those model laws drafted by Americans United for Life. And now those laws are picking up steam. And so we see 27 states around America, there's some form of these anti-choice laws. It's mind-boggling. It is. I mean, and, and that's, I think it's important to recognize, while this is certainly a threat to abortion rights, this is a political, systematic approach to depriving millions of people of rights on all sorts of levels. And, you know, voting matters. Who's in the Supreme Court matters. So Texas is the state with the second largest state with women of reproductive age, 5.4 million women. Before the laws regulating the clinics, before the the law basically makes them become mini hospitals, and it's extremely expensive or sometimes impossible to comply with. So before the law, there were about 40 clinics in Texas. Immediately after, there were 19. If the law is upheld, there will be nine. And most of those will be centered in cities, in busy cities. So there will be hundreds of miles where you'll be able to go without any abortion clinic. And we've discussed it's a real health issue. The numbers of women self-aborting has risen. There's a study that between 100,000 and 240,000 Texas, just in Texas, have tried to self-abort. People are hemorrhaging, people are throwing themselves downstairs, emergency rooms. It's really a pre-row situation, which is exactly what Americans United for Life, that is exactly their intent. Finally, a majority of Americans support women's right to abortion, a fact that's been true for about two decades now. Support for that right actually increased after attacks on Planned Parenthood last year. And development experts have for decades, maybe centuries, identified women's right to control family size and birth timing as critical to communities' economic and social development. That's just by way of indicating how far removed from the reality of abortion is the U.S. media conversation about it, at least as represented by cable news. Rachel Laris and Sharon Can at Media Matters surveyed 14 months of evening cable news on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. They found a discussion that's first of all dominated by the part of the population that don't have abortions. 62% of those talking in segments on the topic were men. 70% of those talking about it on Fox could be identified as anti-choice, but CNN also had three times the number of appearances by anti-choice guests as by pro-choice. Researchers tracked the incidence of certain types of misinformation, like the idea that birth control is abortifacient. Fox won that contest in a walk. 
And while women of color are disproportionately affected by restrictions like the Hyde Amendment, which bans abortion access for women who get their health care through Medicaid, only one guest in the three-month study period was an advocate for reproductive rights for women of color. That guest, Jessica Gonzalez Rojas of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, who appeared on All In with Chris Hayes, has made the point that Hyde was and is a deliberate attack on low-income women's reproductive freedom. Henry Hyde famously said he'd like to be able to prevent rich and poor women from deciding whether to have a child. Unfortunately, the only vehicle available is the Medicaid bill. Some states have workarounds for Hyde, but that just means something so crucial to a woman's life can be dependent on her zip code. And nearly half of Latinas and roughly 70% of black women live in states without public coverage of abortion, most of which are now also considered hostile due to newer state restrictions. More of that sort of economic and racial context would be one way to move media's abortion conversation beyond what this research suggests is a pretty unhelpful he said, he said debate. Wherever you are on this spectrum, whether you, like me, believe that women should have the right to choose or whether you believe abortion should only be allowed in a few circumstances, then this story should concern you. And here is why. Since 2010, new state laws have contributed to the closure of about 70 abortion clinics. And these four states are down to exactly one abortion clinic each. That's right. Mississippi now has four times as many S's as it has abortion clinics. (laughs) And if you're thinking, how is that possible? Well, it's in no small part because the key Supreme Court decision concerning abortion is no longer Roe versus Wade. It's the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey ruling that said states can create restrictions as long as they don't place an undue burden that places an, a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. Meaning women can be asked to jump through a few hoops, just not too many. Which might sound a little less insulting if those weren't also the rules for a dog agility course. (laughs) And the vagueness of that ruling has allowed states to introduce dozens of what some have called trap laws, or targeted regulation of abortion providers, though their supporters, to an eerie degree, all characterise them somewhat differently. This is really about uh, uh, the issue of women's health. We're protecting women's health and safety. We are protecting women's health. I just wanted to reiterate that this is really all about protecting the health and safety of women. Yeah, but when you're that insistent about women's health, it starts to sound suspicious. It's like having a folder on your computer called Definitely Not Porn. (laughs) You're not fooling anyone. You're asking more questions than you're answering. So, so, So let's take a look at what these laws actually do for women's health, starting with Texas's HB2 which passed in 2013 and had two key stipulations. 
It requires abortion clinics to meet the same building standards as outpatient surgical centers and requires their doctors to have hospital admitting privileges. Okay, now hospital admitting privileges and high building standards sound great until you realize what they actually mean. Sort of how Moondance sounds like a lovely night of romance and whimsy, but really means having sex with Van Morrison. And that's not what you signed up for. Because the outpatient surgical center requirement can be difficult to fulfill, as this Texas clinic discovered. Explain again why it's going to be shut down, because this isn't wide enough? Yeah, because right now the walls that we have, they're about three feet wide. Mm -hmm. And to be an ASC, it has to be eight feet wide. Now, I'm not saying width isn't important. In fact, in some circumstances, it's far more important than length. Is a thing that I have heard. Penises, I'm talking about penises. But, but that eight-foot requirement is wide enough for two surgical gurneys to pass one another in a corridor, which is just not something that is likely to happen at a small abortion clinic. About 90% of abortions occur in the first trimester when they are generally non-surgical procedures with no cutting and only mild sedation. They usually involve suction or just taking medication, neither of which require a large surgical facility. You don't need an operating room to take a pill, which is a good thing because you wouldn't want an entire surgical team scrubbing in every time Larry King needed a boner. <laughs> They'll get tired and... And as for Texas's law, that doctors have admitting privileges at a local hospital, a requirement 10 other states have also passed, that can shut a clinic down. Because many hospitals, for financial or political reasons, won't grant them to a doctor who performs abortions. And again, defenders of these laws will say they have a simple purpose. By requiring that abortionists obtain admitting privileges at local hospitals, we are protecting women's health. Yeah, but are you, though? Because it's worth noting both the AMA and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have argued there is simply no medical basis for requiring local admitting privileges, which does make sense because hospitals will see anyone. They'll see you if you've gotten an Elmo Pez dispenser stuck in your butt. They'll have questions for you, but they will see you. They'll see you, they'll question you, and later they may laugh at you. And, and while we are on the subject of safety, Legal abortions have a mortality rate of 0.00073%. That is nearly 10 times less than what one study found was the risk for dying as the result of a colonoscopy. And let's agree, by the way, all of us, death by colonoscopy has to be one of the worst ways to die. Right after having your mother catch you masturbating, and while you're trying to pull your pants up, you fall and hit your head, so your dad has to carry you pantsless to the car to take you to the hospital, and the girl next door you have a crush on tries to help, but she's laughing so hard at the size of your penis that she closes the door in your hand, startling your mother, who slams her foot on the gas, dragging you behind the car for several blocks, while your father yells your TV show is derivative and you'll never escape the shadow of John Stewart. That's, that's, that's what we're all... That's what we're all afraid of, right? That's what we're all pretty afraid That's a general fear. And... And look, if admitting privileges are so important for continuity of care, it is weird that you don't need them in Texas to run a birthing centre, even though one study found that 12% of women admitted to birthing centres wound up being transferred to a hospital. So Texas will shut down an abortion clinic for having walls too close together. But if you want to give birth in a tub surrounded by mood lighting, potpourri and the music of Bonnie Vare, no one will say anything other than just take it down a notch. <laughs> and proponents of these laws 
will point to a few notorious cases, like the clinic run by Kermit Gosnell in Pennsylvania, who wound up being convicted of murder. Although, for the record, his clinic had not been inspected for 17 years, which it absolutely should have been. They didn't need new laws so much as they needed to bother to enforce the ones they had. Putting absurd new restrictions on all clinics because of Kermit Gosnell is like seeing that photo of a Taco Bell employee <laughs> licking the food and saying, OK, all restaurants have to have corridors that are eight feet wide. <laughs> well, hold on, that's going to shut down most of the restaurants in the country and you've done nothing to address the root problem here. <laughs> and, and some of these laws have nothing whatsoever to do with clinic safety like the ones that force doctors like Willie Parker to actively spread misinformation. The state requires me to uh, cover some very basic information with you. First, the state requires me to tell you that if you're having an abortion, there's the possibility of having complications. There's a risk of bleeding. There's a risk of infection. There's a risk of damage to any of your organs. But guess what? Those are all the exact same risks from continuing pregnancy and going to term. The final thing that I have to tell you that I don't agree with, but I have to tell you anyway, Having an abortion can increase your risk for breast cancer. There's no, not a shred of scientific evidence to prove that. They can require me to tell you uh, the first part, but they, they can't stop me from giving you my best medical opinion, and that is that there's no increased risk for breast cancer from an abortion. It, it must be so weird. It must be... It must be weird for a woman to witness her medical professional forced to play a game of good doctor, bad doctor. <laughs> OK, time for your tetanus booster. No, those cause autism. Well, there's not a shred of scientific evidence to prove that. Bad doctor. Bad, bad doctor. <laughs> In addition, some states have passed laws requiring providers to show and describe an ultrasound image, whether a woman wants to see that or not. And when North Carolina was defending such a law, this was how they attempted to soften that. The proposed law says if a woman wishes not to see the ultrasound or hear the fetal heartbeat, she may cover her ears and eyes and refuse to listen. Oh, great. So North Carolina tried to give women viewing ultrasounds the same option as women trying to watch John Travolta's performance in the new O.J. Simpson show. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What is he doing? Oh, does he think Robert Shapiro was a sad clown in a Baz Luhrmann movie? I didn't want to watch this. Why are you making me? And some other clinics enter into a bureaucratic war as a result of these laws. Take this clinic in Alabama. It was shut down after not being able to meet the new building codes Alabama had forced upon it. But instead of giving up, the owner cashed in his retirement savings to open a new facility that complied completely with the law. And that is when Alabama started targeting him directly. I've spent close to a million dollars to meet all of their requirements and you think you're done, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to pass another bill that said I can't be in 2,000 feet of a school. They're treating me, the patients, the physicians, as sex offenders. Well, they're, they're treating someone like a sex offender when he clearly isn't one. It's a move that's now commonly known as a reverse Cosby. <laughs> and, and, look, and look, if you are thinking... If you're thinking, but John, when a clinic closes, can't women just travel further? You should know there are now mandatory waiting periods in 27 states, some up to 72 hours between an initial consult and an abortion. So women can be forced to either take multiple trips or plan the shittiest three-day weekend imaginable. And if that's not possible, they can end up making desperate decisions. 
Listen to one clinic administrator describe a call from a patient. I told her, you can come to San Antonio, we can help you here. And she said, I can't, I have, I don't have the means, there is no way I can get to San Antonio. So what if I tell you what I have in my kitchen cabinet and you tell me what I can do? I'll tell you what I have in my kitchen cabinet and you can tell me what I can do. When your state's abortion laws are forcing people into the most depressing quickfire challenge in Top Chef history, I think it's safe to say they've gone too f***ing far. Because here is the thing. Abortion cannot just be theoretically legal. It has to be literally accessible. And remember, every single one of us watching this right now, every, every single one of us watching right now agrees that it should be legal at the very least in a few extreme circumstances. Say, hypothetically, a young girl has been the victim of sexual assault. Well, thanks to these laws, this hypothetical girl uh, might have to travel a long distance because there were no clinics close to her. Uh, and again, thanks to these laws, the girl might be approaching the point where her state won't let her get the procedure at all. Well, sadly, none of that is hypothetical, and I'll let a Texas clinic director tell you the rest. In order to see her, I need to put her to sleep. And in order to do that, I need a nurse anesthetist. And because of this crazy law, it is impossible to find people to work for us. She's 13 years old, and she is a victim of rape, and she drove four hours from McAllen to San Antonio, and we had to turn her away. And there was nothing I could do to save her. And so now, if she has a procedure, and that if is huge, she'll have to go all the way to New Mexico and pay $5,000 and get there and spend three days. It'll never happen. We know it won't. And at that point, we have sentenced a child to motherhood. Now that specific provider, Whole Woman's Health, is actually at the center of a Supreme Court case that will be heard next month. If it's a 4-4 tie, the Texas laws stand. So the best hope is that Justice Kennedy, seen here in dog form, <laughs> straightening his tie, will see Texas's regulation as an undue burden. This whole situation is basically in his paws now. <laughs> Meanwhile, Florida is drafting similar trap laws, and the law in Alabama that would close that one clinic near a school will be introduced to committee later this week. And if all this has made you sad or angry, then you should really keep an eye on these laws. Rid us of our little trouble Our unwanted This show is sponsored by Audible.com, who provides over 180,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and works on iPhone, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your book, so you can access your books anytime, anywhere, in perpetuity. Audible.com also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. As you can imagine, I sometimes need a break from the depressing drumbeat of politics, so I listen to audiobooks on a fairly regular basis. Currently, the one I'm reading to lift my spirits between political binges is by Jared Diamond, who also wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning Guns, Germs, and Steel. His new one is 
is called Collapse, How Societies Choose to Succeed or Fail. So if you need a little pick-me-up after politics, why not check it out and hear all about how whole societies died off and were wiped from existence. And just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash left today to start your free trial. Again, show your support for Best of the Left and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash left. And when I wake up, you get me a coffee and a sandwich. Last week saw a series of anti-choice protests surrounding the 43rd anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the um, Supreme Court decision that uh, assured women's access to abortion all over the country in 1973. In Washington, D.C., protesters bearing photos of fetuses descended on the construction site for a new Planned Parenthood clinic. The protests forced the charter school next door to close for two days. Well, we're going to turn right now to a new project here at Sundance that puts you in the shoes of a woman passing through the gauntlet of anti-choice protesters to reach an abortion clinic. It's called Across the Line. It's a seven-minute immersive virtual reality experience that uses the real audio of anti-choice protesters. I spoke with the project's co-creator, Nani de la Pena, known as the godmother of virtual reality. She actually calls it immersive journalism. And with one of the executive producers, uh, Don Legans, the executive vice president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America, I started by asking Don to explain what Across the Line is. It is an opportunity for people to experience firsthand what women and men around the country go through and providers as they try sometimes to access health care at women's health centers like Planned Parenthood. So in this virtual reality experience, you both get to observe someone as they are at a health center and some of their arrival there, but then you get to step actually into that person's shoes and experience what it feels like to walk along a line of protesters and have them shout obscene and outrageous things at you uh, while you just try and access uh, reproductive health care. Let's go to a clip of Across the Line. So nobody would know if you were her granddaughter. How can you say protect the rights of the mom if you're not willing to protect the rights of the child? Shame on you. This is walk in here with a smile, right? Into a murder clinic. Shame on you. God's going to destroy you in the lake of fire and you won't be smiling then. You're going to be weeping, wailing, and gnashing your teeth. Shame on you, you wicked, pathetic woman. Wicked Jezebel feminist. Yeah, you shouldn't have been a whore. You shouldn't have been sleeping with every guy at the club. You wicked Jezebel. Among the things screamed at a woman, uh, she's going into a clinic, wicked Jezebel feminist. Talk about the reality of this virtual reality, Don. We really were um, wanting to show what really happened. So, in fact, we only went and taped 
actually what happened, the real audio of what people say. None of it is created uh, or made up. So this is actually what women face as they walk into these health centers. And people are coming out of this uh, experience, some of them in tears, um, many of them telling their own stories, many people saying, I had no idea that that's what happened. Like I knew people sometimes protested. I didn't know that's what it was like. And now I feel like I have to do something. Nani de la Pena, it is very powerful. In fact, you call this virtual reality piece across the line, immersive journalism. Explain. So immersive journalism is a concept I came up with uh, a number of years ago uh, to describe the use of virtual reality to put people on scene as real events transpire. Um, Across the Line is an interesting piece because it does a mix of 360 video and the uh, computer-generated material. Um, and the reason we chose uh, the way that we put the piece together, because in an interesting way, it's a montage of voices from across the nation, the type of things that are yelled at young women all around this country rather than just um, showing one independent scene. So when you're having to walk the line, walk the gauntlet in this piece, you're being screamed at in the way that women all around the country are screamed at. So um, it's, a, it's a kind of interesting amalgamation. of pieces. So, I mean, when I did this this weekend um, in this virtual reality kind of box, I put on the goggles and suddenly I'm in a clinic and I can turn my head either way and I'm seeing the whole room, the doctor talking to the patient who's extremely disturbed because of the gauntlet she had to go through to get in. And the second one is kind of sitting in the back seat of the car of these two women, the driver is holding the hand of the woman who's going into the clinic. And you see why she was so upset when she got into the clinic room with a man who has got his head uh, thrust at her uh, by the window, telling her not to go into this clinic, not to kill babies. I'm just not sure which building it is. Excuse me? I'm not sure which building it is. The abortion clinic? The healthcare clinic. It's an abortion clinic, ma'am. They'll do 20 to 30 abortions here today. Look, there's a place that's very safe down the street called Waterleaf. Please let me take you there. Please. I can't. Please. Look, I know you're struggling with something, right? But I don't want to see you get hurt. And then you've got the last one where... I actually walk along and being led by one of the uh, clinic um, volunteers to try to make my way through the gauntlet to get into the clinic. Describe that one, because there I'm actually walking. Yeah, so the new virtual reality headsets um, allow you to actually walk around. And it's very difficult to describe how impactful that experience is. You get a sense of you know, being present in this world uh, in the same way that you would in your natural day. You know, I mean, it's not 100%, but it's uh, certainly very evocative. You know you're here, but you feel like you're there too. And because you feel like you're there, because you personally have to walk the line, and everything you're hearing came from real um, voices across the country, you experience it in a way that's very personal and very visceral. You're a wicked woman, you know that? You're a wicked woman. What do you think you're doing here? One of the designs of the pieces... um, it is predominantly white males who are yelling at young women, right? Um, it just is. And I don't think that people understand how vitriolic the conversation is out there how, and how, um, you know. Is that true across the country in these yeah, well, protests? 
you do have women, but predominantly the people who are screaming are the white guys. And um, I have to say, the the thing is that when you try to put people on scene, the idea is for them to kind of understand what's happening. And if there's a way to do that, perhaps we can make it into a much more civil conversation. It's not about like you know who's right or who's wrong at this moment. You know, women do need to go into the health centers and get uh, care, right? Um, uh, this is, you know, locum women are, are reliant on these centers, and it doesn't seem appropriate that to go get health care that you should experience that kind of vitriolic, um, angry, terrible stuff hurled at you. I mean, it's awful. You whore, you shouldn't mix it with every guy at the club. I mean, it's pretty nasty. So the point of the piece is to kind of go, well, is there, you know, um, is this... This is what's happening, so it's journalistically appropriate that way. This is what we're seeing out there. But also, does it then uh, lend itself toward some way for the conversation to become more civil? That's Nani de la Peña. She is known as the godmother of virtual reality. She calls it immersive journalism. Co-creator of Across the Line, uh, as well as Dawn Legans, executive vice president of Planned Parenthood, who together with Karen Sprook uh, and others, executive produced Across the Line. Here we got pregnant from a kid named Tom said he was in love. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support the Women's Health Protection Act to counter trap laws. In the last four years alone, states including Texas, Utah, and South Carolina have enacted over 250 new restrictions on access to safe and legal abortion, all under the guise of protecting women's health. In response to years of relentless assaults on women's health, safety, and constitutional rights, the Act for Women campaign is urging support of the Women's Health Protection Act, federal legislation that would not only counter trap laws, but enforce and protect the right of every woman to decide for herself whether to continue or end a pregnancy, regardless of where she lives. The Act for Women Action Toolkit, available for download from actforwomen.org, suggests the following ways to engage with the campaign and raise awareness and support for the legislation. Write a letter to the editor about the Women's Health Protection Act, attend a town hall meeting and ask about the Women's Health Protection Act, connect the Women's Health Protection Act to your state work, schedule an in-district lobby visit to discuss the Women's Health Protection Act, amplify the voices of your state and local lawmakers, and finally, use the hashtag Act for Women online. Additionally, on Monday, June 20th, PBS will air Trapped, a highly praised documentary 
documentary by filmmaker Don Porter, who we heard interviewed earlier today about the abortion access crisis in America. The Center for Reproductive Rights, a member of the Act for Women campaign, is encouraging all to spread the word and or host a watch party. While the primary focus of the Act for Women campaign is maintaining access to safe and legal abortion care, the campaign recognizes that the fight does not end there, saying, quote, Women of color, young women, transgender and gender nonconforming persons, low-income people, and immigrant communities often encounter additional barriers to obtaining health services. The campaign supports and encourages parallel efforts to remove all obstacles to accessing affordable, non-discriminatory, and quality sexual and reproductive health care, unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if protecting access to reproductive health care is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about how to support the Women's Health Protection Act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Resolve to make the choice every day that can never be taken away, the choice to fight back. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. So I'd never heard of Lee Chatfield until a couple of days ago. He is a Michigan GOP state representative. He is a Republican. He's part of the Republican majority that controls Michigan's legislature that is running the place, running Michigan into the ground. That's what Republicans do. They don't think government works. So when they get in charge of government, they do all they can to prove it doesn't work by throwing monkey wrenches in wherever they can. And like almost all dick having and not dick having, Republican elected officials in state legislatures, Lee Chatfield is an anti-choice, anti-abortion extremist. Right now he's trying to push through the Michigan state legislature a bill that would criminalize procedure used in almost all second trimester abortions that then would leave other options for women who needed abortions in their second trimester that were a lot more dangerous for the woman that would imperil the woman's health. Just another anti-choice Republican elected official asshole. What brought him to my attention and what made the news is his wife, Stephanie Chatfield, came out last week in a long Facebook post about the fact that when she was a teenager, she had an abortion herself, that she chose to have an abortion. After allegedly passing out somewhere at a party and being raped and then finding out three weeks later she was pregnant, she didn't tell anyone. She didn't tell her boyfriend at the time, her on-again, off-again boyfriend at the time, a guy named Lee Chatfield that she would later marry. She didn't tell her parents all by herself. She went in the first trimester and had an abortion, chose to have an abortion. And she came forward to talk about this because someone was threatening to out her. Somebody knew that she had had an abortion when she was a teenager and her husband is running for reelection and somebody was threatening to out her. Now, here's how I feel about outing. When it comes to gay shit. I've talked about it a lot, but I think this applies in all cases. Outing is a brutal tactic that should be reserved for brutes. And I don't think the families of elected officials are necessarily fair game. 
whoever was threatening to out Stephanie Chatfield about the abortion that she had alone and desperate and without much support when she was a teenager shouldn't have gone there, shouldn't have done that. So I don't think it was fair that this was done to Stephanie Chatfield because she happens to be married to an asshole who would like to deprive other women of the choice that she was free to make when she was a teenager. But now that her story is out there, now that she's talking about her story, I think it's fair game for the rest of us to talk about it and comment on it. She wrote in her Facebook post, your desire, addressing the person threatening to out her, to see this story go public embolden me to do something I should have done years ago. And no matter the intentions of anybody wishing to see this story go public, this I am certain of, God meant it for good and will glorify himself through this, through this experience, through her choice, through being outed for it. And here's the takeaway for Mrs. Chatfield, for Stephanie, about the abortion that she had. I was ashamed and I was scared. And this was the worst decision of my life. To tell you the truth, I desperately wish that I had the courage as a teenage girl to accept and welcome my child into this world but I didn't, and I made a decision that I've thought about and regretted nearly every day since. It's haunted me. I knew what I did was wrong at the time, but I never imagined the weight and the guilt that I would carry as a consequence. And now, Stephanie Chatfield, by dint of her personal experience, she supports her husband's efforts and the efforts of other Republicans to make abortion illegal, to deprive other women and girls of the choice that she made because she regrets the choice that she made. This is a leap that people who had the opposite experience don't make. What Stephanie Chatfield is saying is, I regret my abortion, therefore, you shouldn't be allowed to have one. You don't hear, you never hear people who've had abortion say, because I don't regret my abortion, you should be required to have one. Or the choice that I made that was right for me must be right for you and right for all because it was right for me. You don't see people on the other side make that logical leap. I have regrets. Therefore, you shouldn't be allowed to make this choice. I don't have regrets. Therefore, what? Dot, dot, dot. Therefore, nothing. Make your own choice is the argument people on the pro-choice side make. And the fact is that the overwhelming majority of women who've had abortions do not regret their decision. You can go to plos.org and you can read Decision Rightness and Emotional Responses to Abortion in the United States, a longitudinal study And this study tracked 667 women who'd had abortions at 30 facilities all across the United States of all ages and races and had abortions for all sorts of different reasons. And what it found was that 95% of all respondents, quote, reported that having the abortion was the right decision for them. I understand there are people out there who regret having had an abortion. I don't want to see anyone have, as a pro-choice person, I don't want to see anyone have an abortion that they regret. I don't want to see people having abortions because they don't feel like they have any other choice or because they feel alone or scared or they can't reach out or they fear being sex shamed or dumped or judged. That's not a free choice, but to make the leap from I made the wrong choice or the wrong choice for me to, I support my husband's efforts to deprive others of their their own choices, of their own free will, of their own capacity to make their own decisions and make their own choices and then live with the consequences of their own choices and their own decisions. That I can't support. That looks like attempting to make yourself right with God by punishing others or depriving others of the choice that was right for you at the time that you made it perhaps 
and that you feel guilty or conflicted about now, now that you happen to be married to an anti-choice extremist. In the best of all possible worlds, no one would get an abortion that they regretted. In the best of all possible worlds, no one would ever make any choice that they lived to regret. We should all live in that kind of utopia. And in the best of all possible worlds, young women who've been assaulted or young women who found themselves inconveniently pregnant for some other reason would be able to reach out to their families and to their on-again, off-again boyfriends and get their support and be able to hash that out and then make their own choice. That didn't happen for Stephanie Chatfield. And I'm against people depriving others of their ability to make their own choices. I'm against whoever it was that forced Stephanie Chatfield to come out about the abortion that she had, depriving her of her right to choose to keep that private thing private. And I'm also against her husband's efforts to deprive other women in Michigan, and if she'd ever make it onto the national stage, women all across the country, of their right to make their own choices as well, including the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. We just heard clips featuring a Planned Parenthood video highlighting one woman's story of an abortion at 21 weeks. Propaganda interviewed Dawn Porter about her film Trapped. Counterspin pointed out the ridiculous gender disparity in the media that often results in a he said, he said debate on the issue. John Oliver on Last Week Tonight dove into some of the details of abortion laws. Democracy Now! took a tour of the new virtual reality film that allows viewers to experience the abuse women often must endure while approaching abortion clinics. Our activism for today is in support of the Women's Health Protection Act. And finally, we just heard Dan Savage explain why one person's choices, whether filled with regret or not, not, should have no bearing on the choices that anyone else is allowed to make. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. I just finished listening to episode 1020. It's Monday morning. And the coincidental timing of an episode about anti-trans discrimination and legislation couldn't be more heartbreaking. After the mass murder in Orlando at a pride celebration at a gay nightclub where, as of Monday morning, the last I saw in the news, 50 people were killed, 53 people were injured. Um... You know, there's a straight line from one to the other. There's no question that anti-LGBT legislation, anti-LGBT rhetoric from government officials has empowered bigots to want to take action. And I understand that the killer in this case, the murderer in this case, was a person who, you know, apparently told 911 that he was a supporter of ISIS, which is just, who the hell cares? You know, I could call up and say I was going to, you know, go pull off a diamond heist and pledge allegiance to Mickey Mouse 
and that's not the Disney company's fault. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's not like ISIS knew who the hell this clown in Florida was anyway. But of course, because of that, the only thing the corporate media can focus on is the fact that a brown Muslim man committed a crime. And in fact, much of the corporate media and all Republican legislators who are speaking out about this, mostly to offer useless thoughts and prayers rather than any real action, aren't even mentioning the fact that this happened at a gay nightclub. And, of course, there are even more reprehensible people out there, uh, particularly on the religious right, um, I, thinking of Brian Fisher of the American Family Association, who are basically celebrating this act. And never mind the fact that, you know, Donald Trump had to go and make this about him in his tweets. Um, you know, it, it, it's unbelievable, except that, you know, this is what happens all the time. So if I can say anything as an, you know, a lesbian and trans American on Pride Week in Philadelphia, call your state reps, call your federal legislators, demand action on guns. I know, I know it seems like a lost cause when even the mass murder of elementary school children of first graders couldn't move the needle in this country, but eventually the dam has to break. And if you live in a state that does not have non-discrimination law in place for LGBT people, call your state legislatures and demand action. And if you do happen to live in a state where those protections exist, call your federal legislators, call your senators, your congressperson, and demand a federal comprehensive non-discrimination law. There's a lot of talk about ENDA, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. We need more. We need comprehensive non-discrimination. That means housing, public accommodations, that would include restrooms, and employment. That is the kind of rhetoric that will push back against the hate just pouring out of various parts of this country, particularly from the political right and the religious right. Stand up for LGBT people, protect them in the law, and finally, for the love of Mike, do something about guns in this country. It's possible. Other countries have done it. Other countries that have the, you know, supposed gun culture that America has have done it. We can do that. It's all I can do. I'm sad and I'm angry, but I also know that the only thing to do now is to take action. Thanks for getting the word out about everything you do, Jay, and thanks for the show. Hi, Jay. This is Tanya from California. I'm calling to weigh in on the Bernie or bus debate, um, or as one of your callers put it, holding our nose while voting for Hillary, because there's just one piece of this that I haven't heard discussed. And you won't find me defending Hillary because I don't approve of her for all the reasons that, you know, other progressives don't approve of her. I already voted for Bernie in the primary. I sent him money. 
But when when um, it's time for the general, I will be enthusiastically voting for Hillary. And here's why. When I was growing up in the 70s, both of my parents were very active in the women's liberation movement. And I was dragged to, you know, ERA rallies and the like. And I remember when I was about seven asking my mom if she ever thought there would be a woman president. I'll always remember her response. She got this far off look in her eyes and told me the story about when my grandmother was born, women had just you know, barely won the right to vote. And she said, Tanya, there will be a woman president in your lifetime. And then she said, I really truly hope I live long enough to see our first woman president. And at seven, this impressed upon me, you know, how important this is. And ever since then, I just feel this has become increasingly important, monumentally important that this happen. And it begs the question, is being a woman in and of itself a bona fide qualification for this position? And I put to you uh, and to your listeners that yes, yes, it is. Hillary's the only candidate who possesses this qualification. But if you're sitting there thinking, well, it really isn't that important, and certainly that one issue doesn't trump all of her faults, then all I can say to you is that you don't fully appreciate just how oppressive patriarchy actually is, and that you're not sufficiently outraged that the U.S. has never had a woman president in 240 years, and that you don't understand that women particularly, but our entire country as a whole, in fact, the whole world for that matter, has been materially injured because women have been excluded from political power. So let me just repeat this. Not having ever had a woman as president, it's more than just a significant injustice. It's actually a significant injury that causes and perpetuates damage in our society and the world. And now we finally have an opportunity to fix this. For a long time, it couldn't be fixed. Um, The excuse was always, there really weren't any qualified uh, women. Of course, little did we know you don't have to be qualified to run for president, as uh, Trump has demonstrated. You know, people people said, well, we're not going to be able to have a woman in the White House because there's so few women governors and so few female members of Congress. And, you know, how are we going to find a woman who can win? And so I thought, okay, it's going to be the first woman president is going to be kind of like an, an Elizabeth Dole sort, you know, meaning a conservative Republican, because that's the only way. Um, she could win, getting the Republicans, a crossover of you know Democrats that want to break this glass ceiling. But here we are with an exceptionally qualified candidate who's a Democrat, no less, who actually has a very good chance of winning. And the progressives don't want to support her because she's more of the same old establishment that's wrong with our system. And it reminds me of, um, you know, that that axiom, you know, women have to work twice as hard to be considered half as good because we finally have a woman candidate who has the same faults as every male Democratic president we've had during my lifetime. But we can't vote for her because she's just more of the same old problem with our system. And it makes me wince. It's like, finally, a woman's about to win, but now we're insisting on higher standards. And she's still not good enough, even though she's certainly no worse than any president that we've had during my lifetime. While I was thinking about these thoughts, I googled um, a list of female heads of government internationally, and I'm scrolling down, scrolling down for a long time, looking at all the countries that have managed to put a woman in charge. And there are a lot of Muslim countries on that list. I I couldn't help but smirk because we invade Muslim countries under the pretense of liberating women when actually they could teach us a thing or two about this. Listen, best of the left listeners, this is the time. It can actually happen. And if it makes you less likely to hold your nose, then vote for her because of this issue. This needs to happen. And it's really, really important. And if you're still not convinced that this is very important, then I encourage you to check your privilege. Thanks, Jay.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to just follow up on Tanya's voicemail, I certainly agree with essentially everything she said. I, I, I definitely agree that the symbolism of having a female president is going to be powerful, assuming Hillary wins. I think that that would have been a terrible basis for a primary election vote if you decided to vote for her simply because she's a woman and for no other reason, or especially if you're a very progressive person and you want very progressive policies, but you chose Hillary over Bernie for purely gender reasons, I think that is borderline infantile. That said, I still get the very powerful and important uh, symbolism of having a female president. Tanya already explained all of that. I agree. And to take the broad view in another way, I think that one issue, I, I don't know why, I mean, we've been talking about the election off and on here. And one thing that just hasn't come up for whatever variety of reasons is climate change. That's the other long view issue that is unbelievably critically important. And Hillary Clinton, for all of her problems, at least says she believes in climate change and pretends that she will do something about it. Whether or not she will is totally up for question. And I have no doubt that we will have to fight her tooth and nail on all kinds of things involving climate change as well as everything else. Donald Trump, on the other hand, says that it's a conspiracy uh, made up by the Chinese. So for that reason alone, I think the choice is clear. And then the other long-term issue that actually does get discussed more often is the Supreme Court. And for all the same reasons, Hillary, for all of her problems, will undoubtedly put a better person on the Supreme Court. And now I think there are great arguments for why the Supreme Court has too much power and those nine people shouldn't be able to completely upend, uh, you know, our system based on, you know, one change in vote or, you know, as a clip in the show said uh, during the Scalia episode, one single man's death in a country of more than 300 million people should not have the ability to shake our government to the core the way it did and the way it will as it continues to play out as he's replaced. We shouldn't have a system that is that shaky, but that's the system we have right now. And no one is even suggesting how to correct that. So these are the systems in place that we're dealing with, and I don't think that they should be ignored. Uh, but to just get back to gender equality for a moment, I, I totally agree that not having a female president is actually injurious to the country. It's sort of similar to having all men on our currency, which is another thing that's going to change soon. I, I think that although these things are at their core purely symbolic, that those things are important and, and will have a measurable, concrete impact on people, especially young women's lives, as they grow up in the country over the next several decades, that they will be growing up in a country that has at least one woman on the currency and will have had at least one female president. 
sends a very powerful signal. And those are signals that need to be sent. Uh, and those are signals that actually have, uh, they make a measurable difference in people's lives as they are growing up and trying to decide what they're going to be when they grow up or, or just sort of navigate this world that they've come into, the society that they are in, and sort of figuring out, all right, how do things work? To understand that gender barriers clearly did exist and to, to a large extent still do, but that we have made measurable progress against those gender barriers is a huge signal to send to young people that I think will only help accelerate the move to actual gender equality at some most likely distant point in the future. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there, especially on Facebook setting our page to be seen first. That means you'll actually see the things we post there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past